Now, yeah. now when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him and he said, yes, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall, and all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. But when Sambalat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jeru Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. In Judah it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall in open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread, and we are separated on the wall far from each other. And the in the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there, our God will fight for us. So we labored at the work, and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at that time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I, nor my brothers, nor my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes, each kept his weapon at his right hand. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Good morning. Give me a second. All right. Uh, thanks, Lydia. <clears throat> uh, 
Um, I know uh, some of you live a little further out, but the majority of the people that are part of our church um, mostly live in the East Belfast area. Um, I live just up the road a few minutes, not far from Stormont, and our family love um, taking a walk through the estate uh, trails there. I'm sure most people here have walked through the trails of Stormont. Um, and there's a couple uh, parts that I find really interesting. Um, the, the first one, if you go in the main gates and you turn left right away, the trail will take you next to this big hole in the ground. Um, and it's, it's fenced off and it has a sign on it that tells you what this, this hole is, um, saying that this is a crater left from one of the air raids during World War II. They never filled it in. Um, another interesting thing you'll see if you keep going uh, kind of by the bathrooms halfway up are there are these iron plates in the ground with these metal bolts coming up out of the ground and you, you don't really think much of it um, uh, except that there's also another sign that says that this is um, these anchors for these barrage balloons during World War II. So the parliament buildings were covered in like dark camouflage and these, these balloons, these big barrage balloons were anchored here um, to kind of defend the ground targets against these air attacks. So these unfilled craters, these, these uh, anchors in the ground, they're relics, aren't they, of a war that was fought about 80 years ago. Um, the, these, these relics remind us of uh, a war that our country was once in, um, a war that secured our, our, our freedom, but a war that was in the past, right? So you, we don't walk through Stormont anymore and fear bombs dropping on our heads from the sky. But the passage that we are looking at today um, is a reminder that, that today, even we as Christians, we, we are in a war. Um, we, we are in, in a battle that, that is ongoing, uh, that affects every one of us, and that we should be prepared for. Um, let me pray first one more time, and we'll look at God's Word here. Um, God, we thank You for, uh, for Your love. Uh, we thank You for sending Your Son uh, to die on our behalf to make a way for us to, to come close to you, um, to be called yours, your sons and your daughters, and part of your eternal heavenly kingdom. Um, Spirit, would you teach us this morning, uh, would, you, would you build these people up, God? Um, give us what we need to persevere, uh, to continue on. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, hopefully you have your Bibles open to Nehemiah 4. Uh, the story is getting really exciting. Uh, Nehemiah has gathered God's people in Jerusalem uh, to rebuild the city walls and to secure the city. Uh, things aren't going well, though. Um, we, we know at this point, they don't know yet, but it's about 500 years before Jesus Christ will come. And, and the city is in a terrible state. Uh, God's, God's people are in a vulnerable position. Uh, the, the walls are broken down, the city gates are burned, uh, and God's name is being dishonored. Uh, but here's Nehemiah leading God's people. He's got the support of the most powerful man on earth, the, the most powerful nation, the Persian Empire, and he's gathered God's people together to rebuild the city. And I, I didn't have uh, uh, Lydia read all of chapter 3, but um, and we won't go through every single uh, bit of it, but it's a, it's a fascinating account of the rebuilding of, of the wall. It's basically another long list of names, um, but, but we're told uh, at the beginning of chapter 3 that the work starts with the high priest and his brother priest rebuilding the sheep gate. 
Um, the, the, the sheep gate was right by the temple that they had rebuilt. It was probably where they brought in the sacrificial sheep um, to, to, be, to be sacrificed at the temple. Um, and, and then the rest of the chapter basically goes all around the city wall, section by section. Um, and, and in verse 2, it says, next to them, next to the priest, uh, the men of Jericho built. And then next to them, Zakur, the son of Imbri, built. And, and then on and on it goes, next to them, and then next to them, and then next to them. And then the chapter ends all the way back at the Sheep Gate. And, and, and so many different groups of people are named in this rebuilding project. There's, there's priests, and there are uh, tradesmen, there are families, there are sons and daughters, there are people coming from uh, the surrounding towns, there's, there's merchants and shop owners. Everyone is building here. And we don't have time to go into all the amazing lessons of chapter 3, but I think the main thing that you see in that rebuilding is the unity that God has given His people as they rebuild and do His work. It's, it's this beautiful scene of a, a, a unified people with this purpose to build. And then we arrive at chapter 4, and it says this. Let's read from verse 1 again. It says, Now when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he, in the presence of his brothers and the army of Samaria, he said this, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish it up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burdened ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him and he said, yes, what are they building? If a fox goes up on it, it will break down their stone wall. In verse 4, Nehemiah speaks and he says, hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunts on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in the land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall, and all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. So here you have Sanballat again. He's kind of the, the main uh, gang leader uh, he's, he's the main opposition uh, throughout the story. Um, we were introduced to him already in chapter 2, and he hates God's people. He, he hates what they are doing. Um, he, he's a Samaritan, which means he's just from the, uh, the north of Jerusalem here, and he brings with him the, the army of Samaria uh, to, to taunt and to intimidate uh, the, the Jews as they work. Um, he, he seems to be some kind of influential political leader. Um, he has some degree of, of power, which is being jeopardized by the strengthening of Jerusalem. So he hates what they're doing. Um, it, it says he's, it's filled him with a great rage. Um, but he's in a tricky situation, isn't he? Because there's, there's not a whole lot he can, he can do and, and oppose them with. Because remember, Nehemiah and the Jews have the backing of the king of Persia. Uh, so what he's doing is he's, he's trying these different strategies. And here he's, he's mocking and he's jeering at the Jews. And he's rallying others. He's bringing the, 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 the army to, to join in. And he, he's publicly mocking them. And he says, you're pathetic. This is pathetic. Look at your attempts. He's testing their resolve, isn't he? He, he wants the work to stop. And so he resorts to taunting God's people. He says, you're too weak. And to be, to be fair, they, they were pretty weak, so he's, he's missing the point of what God is doing here. But he's taunting them. He says, this is pathetic. Look at these stones. They aren't even fit for purpose. They're, they're all burned up. You're too weak. 
You're too vulnerable. You cannot do this. And he essentially says, what are you going to do? Are you, are you going to pray the wall up? And then Tobiah slides in and he joins in the taunting. He says, yeah, a fox could knock this wall over. They're jeering and they're taunting God's people. Here's a general Bible rule. Behind the voices of our earthly opponents is the voice of our enemy, the, the ultimate enemy of God and His people, Satan himself. And, and the Apostle Paul says this in Ephesians 6, right? He says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So, so we, we battle not against earthly things per se, but, but against spiritual forces of evil, Satan himself. So, so he's the one behind these earthly opponents here, but, but their jeering and their taunting is, is real. So, so don't, don't think of their taunts as just mere schoolboy antics that you would just shrug off. No, the, the taunting is serious opposition. Taunting can be incredibly effective. Jesus himself was jeered at and, and taunted at his crucifixion. His followers continue to be taunted at. Taunting, taunting is the, the serious work of the enemy, and it's often effective. But look at Nehemiah's response in verse 4. How, how does he respond to this opposition? He responds like he always responds that we've seen so far to hardship, with prayer. Prayer is, is his first reaction always in his life. And, and he prays really honestly, doesn't he? Like, his prayer is quite striking. He says, God, give them justice. Give them justice, God. Make them captive in a foreign land. Count their sins against them. He's reminding God of his justice. He says, God, they've provoked you to anger. He's praying for justice, but he leaves the justice and the vengeance to God. And this prayer is really interesting because when you, you look across the Bible and you see lots of prayers like this, you see, we often think that we can't pray like Nehemiah does here. We, we often think we have to swallow down our emotions and our feelings and the injustice of the situations we find ourselves in, right? We, we don't feel like we can be really honest with God. Rather, we have to formulate the, 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 the theologically correct prayer for the situation. But the Bible's full of these kinds of honest prayers, Many, many psalms pray in this way. Read Psalm 69 sometime. Read Psalm 109. You see, what you see in the Bible is God invites us to come to Him as His children. In every situation, God invites us to come to Him with, with all of our thoughts, with all of our feelings, with our anger, with our hurt, with our fear, to come to Him with those as our Father. He invites us to do that. Nothing is off limits in prayer. If there's an injustice in your life, then pray for justice. But we're to trust the working out of justice to God, to, to leave vengeance with God, because He will have vengeance on His enemies and the enemies of His people. So what does Nehemiah and the people do after they pray? They just focus on the task that God has given them. They're, they're not distracted. They have this unity of purpose a mind to work, the passage tells us, tells us that God has given them this, this unity, this, this purpose 
in building. That they have this resolve to join together and to build, and they achieve it. But the opposition isn't happy in verse 7 again. It says, But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the, the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to, cl- to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. And do you see how verses 1 and 6 kind of mirror verses 7 to 9? Like in both of those sections, they both repeat the exact same pattern. Sanballat and his cronies hear God's people are working. They then become angry. They then oppose the work, which leads Nehemiah and the people to pray. Same pattern in verse 1 to 6 as verse 7 to 9. In the first section, though, they, they oppose them with, with taunts with jeering. And then after that, the people, after the people pray, their response is to just continue working, right? They, they, they just ignore them and build the wall. And that response always tends to enrage bullies even further, right? And which is exactly what happens in verse 7. They, they hear that the work is continuing and they get very angry. And this time they don't oppose them just with, with taunting and jeering, they begin to plot an attack. Uh, so what's going on here? It's, it's not just that these walls are being built, but that a people are being revived, right? From out of the rubble here, the, the people of God are being revived, and the enemy doesn't like it. And so the opposition unite all around the city. That, that's what verse 7 shows us. Sanballat from the north, Tobiah from the east, the Arabs from the south, and the Ashdodites from the west. They're surrounding the city on every side, and they're plotting to fight against Jerusalem. But again, they have to be very careful because of Artaxerxes' protection and the, his endorsement of the Jews and their work. So instead, it says they, they seek to cause confusion. They're trying to confuse and, and break up the unity of the Israelites which again leads the people to respond with prayer. Like prayer is always their response. And it says they set a guard. So, so prayer doesn't just doesn't mean inaction, right? I, 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 in fact, I think praying probably led them to, to set a guard. And, and the, the guard probably worked in two ways, right? It, it, it showed that those who opposed them on the outside of the walls, that they were ready to fight if it came to it. But it also strengthened the people inside the city. We're, hey, we're ready. Morning or night, we're ready, we're watching, and we're praying. And then in verse 10, more opposition, more opportunities to falter keep coming. Verse 10 says, in Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There's too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. So it's almost like the people of Judah begin to doubt a little, right? They begin to waver. The strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. It's too big of a job. I'm not a builder, but I think that's how walls work. Like the taller the wall gets, the harder it is to build it, the deeper they're having to dig for the stones. The work is getting incredibly difficult. Are we too weak to finish it? So there's this internal flutter the, the, the seed of doubt is being planted. 
In verse 11, you get more opposition, but from outside the community again. It says, and our enemies said, they will not see, they will not know or see till we come in and kill them and stop the work. So it's no longer just jeering. They're threatening to come and kill them. It must have been a terrifying situation to work in. And then in verse 12, more doubters from the surrounding area. It says, at that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. Imagine how hard it would have been to, to keep your resolve and to keep going if your surrounding communities, maybe your friends, maybe some family, ten times say, would you just stop? Don't you see the danger you're in because of these enemies that oppose you? Would you just stop already and come home? These are serious threats to this building project. And Nehemiah knows it. And so what does he do? How does he lead them? And I, I, I found it interesting that, that Nehemiah is amongst the people, right? He knows the people. He sees the fear on their faces. He understands what they're going through. He can, he can read the situation. And, he, and he's able to make really wise decisions because he's praying and because he knows the people. And so how does he respond in verse 13? says, so in the lowest parts of the space, behind the wall, in open places, I stationed the people by their clans, with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to, all, and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. So he sets people and these soldiers in key positions. He puts them in these areas where he thinks they might be weak. And he arms them with spears and, and, and swords and, and bows, these offensive weapons, these, these weapons that, that show strength, so that the people and the enemies know these guys are ready to fight. And then in verse 14, he, he gathers the people together, the leaders, the officials, everyone, right there in the open place, and, and right where, where everyone can, can see and hear what they're saying, and he tells God's people, do not be afraid of them. Don't be afraid. If you've ever told someone that, you generally have to give them a better reason why they're not to be afraid. And I, I have to do this with my kids all the time, maybe at the play park. They're climbing high, and I can see fear in their face, and I say, don't be afraid, and the reason's always the same. Daddy's got you. Daddy's here. I, 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 I've got you. Uh, you're safe with me. I won't let you fall. And that's exactly what he tells the, the, the builders. Do not be afraid of them. And, and immediately, he tells them why. Remember the Lord, how great and awesome he is. Remember the Lord. That's why you don't need to be afraid. That's why you can have hope. That, that word remember, Alan looked at uh, Lamentations 3 last week. It's the same word in that section. Lamentations 3 is pretty dire, isn't it? Lamentations 3 verse 17 says, My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say, my endurance has perished. So is my hope from the Lord. That's one of the, the, the bleakest situations you can read in, in Scripture. I can't even remember what happiness is. 
My endurance has gone completely. So is my hope in the Lord. Remember my affliction, the, 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 my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it. And then there's this turning, turning uh, spot, right? And he says, but, but this I call to mind. There's something else I will remember, something else I'm going to, 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 to bring into mind and, and fill myself up with, and therefore I have hope. And what does he remember? He remembers the Lord, how, how, how much he, his, his love is never-ending, his mercies, his faithfulness, and remembering this fills him with hope. And that's exactly what Nehemiah is doing for the people in the wall. Remember the Lord how great and awesome he is. Remember how he, he brought the people of, uh, of Israel out of Egypt by his mighty hand. Don't be afraid because he is on our side. And then he gives this brave heart speech. Fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, your homes. He says, look left and right. He wants them to see who they are fighting for and with. And when they looked left and right on that wall, what did they see? They saw what, what you see when you look left and right today. Family, brothers and, and sons and daughters and wives and, and, and friends and people they love. People they would die for. People they know would die for them. This Nehemiah is, is rallying God's people. Remember God and remember God's people. Fight and build. What a rallying cry. And then you see the people's response to this rallying cry in verse 15. It says, When our enemies heard that it was known, uh, that, uh, that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we returned to the wall, each to his work. From that day on, half my servants worked with construction and half held their spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on their work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped with it to his side while he built. The man who sounded trumpet was beside me, this is Nehemiah talking, and he, he said, I said to the nobles, to the officials, and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread, and we are separated on the wall, far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. Verse 21, so we labored at the work, and half of them held the spears from the, dawn, from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at that time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. What's this telling us about their operation? It seems the opposition weren't brave enough to attack. They, they, they knew they didn't have what it takes to take on the king of Persia. So w w what this all was, was they were seeking to sow confusion amongst the people. They, they were seeking to sow doubt. And Nehemiah declares that God has frustrated their plans. So, so what, what had Nehemiah and the people done? 
all they have done so far is pray, remember the Lord, and get ready. God has done the rest of the work. He's done the rest of the, 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 the battle in that way. He, he's the one who frustrated the enemy's plans. But, but now his people are ready. They're, they're dressed for action. They're, they're ready for battle. They're, they're building. They're working, but with swords by their side. They're, they're ready for action. We're in a battle here. And Nehemiah does this really smart thing. He sees the work that's spread across the entire wall, and as a way to help them, from, uh, to, to, to help them when danger comes, he positions these, these trumpet systems along the wall to rally the people. And the historian Josephus writes that Nehemiah put a trumpet every 500 feet. But look again what Nehemiah does in verse 20. He, he points them all the time, all the time, back to God. God fights for us. This, this is God's battle. He fights for us. He's the one who's protecting us. He's the one who is empowering us. He's the one who is in control here. He's probably reminded them of all the ways God fought for his people in the past. Exodus and Deuteronomy. God fights for his people. It echoes the New Testament. It echoes what Paul said in Romans 8, right? If God is for us, who can be against us? He is constantly reminding them of this as they build the wall of God's city. They're constantly ready. Verse 22, night and day, they don't even change their clothes. They're constantly ready. God is calling his people to fight and to build, to be dressed and ready for action, to be a people who, who know they've been given this God-given task, a people who know they are in a battle. So what does it mean for us? What, what's... What's the parallel for us? What's the application for us? Because the story can be a little alien, right? Like all, all the talk of building and fighting and battles and walls and gates and opposition. How does this apply to, to us Christians in the year 2023? We're not in Jerusalem. We're not physically building any walls. We're not strapping swords to our sides, holding spears ready to fight the people attack. Brothers and sisters, you need to know that we have been brought into this story. As God's people, we are part of God's eternal plan, and God continues to use us in the unfolding of His purposes. You see, the, the, the ultimate enemy of God's people, you read through the Bible, is their sin and, and the death that resulted from it and the devil that was behind it all. You see, when, when Jesus comes 500 years later here, on one hand, he's the embodiment of, of all that we see here, right? Jesus said that, he, he said to his disciples in Luke, all that was written in the Old Testament, it's fulfilled in me. So, so he embodies everything that we're reading here. Jesus is the one who steps forward into the brokenness on behalf of God's people. Jesus was jeered and mocked and betrayed and as he took that punishment, the consequences for our sin, our rejection of God that brought alienation between us and God, as he destroyed the works of the devil, as he went through death and defeated death and rose victorious on the grave, our enemy is now defeated in him, right? Hallelujah. And then he gives his followers this great commission, a task, work to do, building. He says, go and make disciples, Go and baptize new believers, proclaiming the good news, 
proclaiming the kingdom, teaching them to observe all that I have taught you, how to, how to live as Christians, to, how to edify fellow believers, how to, how to build up fellow believers. This is the task of building and advancing God's kingdom. And we as Village Church have been given this amazing privilege, haven't we? We've been drawn into God's eternal plan for humanity. There's a point and a purpose to your existence. And it's to make disciples and to proclaim the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. To edify, to to love, to serve, to build up other believers. But listen to me. As we do this work, you will face opposition. And you see in Nehemiah's day, the the opposing armies in many ways were empty threats, right? They they didn't have the power that they were pretending to have. They didn't didn't have the, the might that they were pretending to have. God's people had the protection of the king. Okay, so really it was just a lot of fear-mongering, a lot, lot of scare-mongering. There was only so much that the, uh, that the enemy could do here, right? And the Bible's clear that Jesus is ruling and reigning right now. He did defeat the devil at the cross, and the devil is bound. But the Bible also tells us that, that he and his spiritual forces still threaten and attack God's people in, in ways. But they're restrained and controlled by the king. They're, they're fearful of the king, And they know, like we do, that in the final day, there's going to be a trumpet blast, and Jesus Christ will return and rally his people, and we'll see the victory achieved on the cross brought to a close over Jesus' enemies. Sin will be no more. Death will be defeated forever, and the devil and all his accusations against us will be destroyed forever and ever. That's a day that's ahead of us, church. But it means that we as Christians We're in a spiritual battle as we seek to build. We're called to have a wartime mentality, knowing that we're on the winning side. And I think this is where we have a hard time applying this to our lives today. It's because I don't know if we necessarily see ourselves as being in a battle. I I, I don't think we necessarily always see ourselves every morning when we wake up as, as active in God's eternal plans. Listen to me, Christian, your identity as a a doctor or or a teacher or or a salesman or an accountant or a barista, those are secondary identities. Your primary identity as a redeemed follower of Jesus is a disciple maker, as a builder in his kingdom. And we do this work in our ordinary lives, right? In our jobs, in our homes. But you have to know that it's a battle. The New Testament makes that crystal clear, that living as a Christian now will bring you opposition. Just living as a Christian now means you will face opposition. You will face jeering. You will face mocking. You will face anger. We will face attempts to silence us. The power of social media, the power of mob mentality. You'll face pressures in in employment situations. You'll face pressures in relational situations. Jesus tells us this, right? He says in in John's gospel, they they hated me, they're going to hate you. He says in Matthew's gospel, they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. 
The Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy 3.12 says, All who live a godly life will suffer persecution. Just, just living a godly life as a Christian will mean persecution for you. That's, that's a challenge, isn't it? We shouldn't be surprised when we face it. So the question is, how do we build and fight in the face of opposition? And just as we close, I'll give you three, three things. Um, in Ephesians 6, chapter 10 to 12, uh, verse 10 to 20, Paul gives that famous putting on the whole armor of, of God to the disciples of Jesus, and it perfectly mirrors the, the Nehemiah section. So from that, here's a few things to, to, on how we are to build and to fight in the face of opposition. Firstly, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Everyone look at me. Your success in this fighting, your success in, in building his kingdom, it does not lie on the strength of your might. It does not lie in your power, in your giftings. It lies squarely on the strength of God's might. Squarely on his power. That, that's been God's message to his people all through the Bible. He chooses Abram an elderly pagan nomad with an elderly barren wife, this couple who cannot have children, he chooses them to start this family who will grow into this nation who will represent him on earth. And, and the reason he does that is to show it's going to be on my power alone, not on yours. It's on my might, not on Abram's. This is God's message to his people in the Exodus. He brings them out of slavery in Egypt by his strong hand. In Exodus 14, when their backs are against the Red Sea and, and uh, Pharaoh's army is bearing down on them, Moses tells them, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. He told them, the Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. In Deuteronomy, God's message to his people when they enter the promised land is, you shall not fear them, for it is the Lord your God who fights for you. Over and over, his message is, your success as my people is not dependent on what you bring to the table. It's only about my power. It's only about the strength of my might on what I will do for you. That's the message Nehemiah gives to the people on the wall. Do not be afraid. Remember the Lord, how great and awesome he is. Our God will fight for us. It's the message of God in the New Testament. It's the message of Jesus to his disciples before he's killed on the cross. In John 14, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Your access to the Father is through me. It's through me fighting on your behalf. It's not about what you do. It's not about what you've accomplished. It's solely based on what I'm accomplishing on your behalf. Brothers and sisters, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Do you know what this means? It means you can be okay with being weak. It means you can actually rejoice in being weak. Because it's the weak ones that God has chosen all through history, right? He chooses elderly men with barren women. He chooses small, insignificant nations. 
He chooses prostitutes and tax collectors and and shepherds and, and, and fishermen. He chooses weak ones for a purpose, to prove that it's by his power, by the strength of his might. So Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. He chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Why does he do that? He says, so that no human might might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you who are in Christ Jesus, Jesus, he he became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, redemption, so that, as it is written, let no one boast, uh, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Weak Christian, doubting Christian, failing Christian, you who woke up this morning thinking, I don't know if I have what it takes to do one more day. I don't know if I can keep going. Listen, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. What does God tell Paul when when Paul is worn out by his weakness, his thorn in the flesh? He says, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. Because of that, you can boast all the more gladly in your weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest in you. Paul says, I'm content with weaknesses, content with insults and hardships and persecution calamities. You content with calamities in your life? Paul says, I am, because he's learned, when I am weak, then I am strong. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. On that wall, Nehemiah told them, don't keep your eyes on the opposition. Don't don't listen to their taunting. Don't, Don't let those seeds of doubt take root. Remember the Lord. Remember how great and awesome he is. Remember that he fights for us. And so secondly, the question is, well, then what does that look like? Well, in Ephesians 6, Paul says, be strong in in his might. He says, it looks like putting on the whole armor of God. Put on the armor of God, just like the builders did on that wall. And he gives them this list, right? The belt of truth, this breastplate of, of righteousness, the gospel of peace for our feet, the shield of faith that extinguishes the flaming darts of the evil one the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is God's Word, strapped to our side continually as we work and build. This is incredibly important. We're in a battle, not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces of evil. And Paul says you need to be equipped for that battle. Have you ever noticed none of those things are things that you conjure up yourself? Every single one of them are things that God gives to us. He he gives you the truth. Jesus says, I am the truth. He he places his righteousness on you in his death on the cross. He is the gospel of peace. He's the one who increases your faith. Your salvation comes from him. He is the word made made flesh. He, He gives you the word of God. How are you to remember the Lord, like Nehemiah says, How are you going to remember how great and awesome he is? 
but by listening to God's word, but by, by being in his word, filling yourself up with that truth. This is, what it is, this is what being strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might looks like. But lastly, and so importantly, we build and we fight in prayer. When you read Ephesians 6, Paul gives that list of the armor of God that we put on. But then in verse 18, he gives this umbrella statement over it all. He says, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with perseverance, making supplication for the saints. Pray at all times. We build and we fight in prayer. This was Nehemiah's strategy, have you noticed? He's always praying. He's leading people in prayer. He's praying to God while he's having conversations. Prayer is his first point of action. Prayer is not just one of the tools that he uses to fight. It's his first line of defense. Prayer is his lifeline. Prayer is is where the power comes from. It's through these prayers that God is acting and responding and unfolding his purposes. And Paul says, praying at all times in the Spirit. so, So even in your prayers, it's not about what you are doing, about what you're uh, uh, conjuring up. It's about what God is doing in you. Jesus has given you His Spirit to abide in you, to dwell in you, to work in you, communing with the Spirit. Here's where the power is. Listen to me. This is why Jesus died for you on the cross. I've been thinking about this this week. If you look at that list of the armor of God, This is the list accomplished because of the work of Christ on the cross. These are things that we desperately need, right? Because of Jesus' work on the cross, you have been declared righteous. We have been given salvation. Because of His work on the cross, we now have peace because He has paid the penalty of our sins, right? Like, praise Jesus for what He's accomplished on your behalf on the cross, But do you know what? You need more than just being declared righteous. You need more than just having your sins taken away. You need more than just having your guilt removed. You need union with Jesus. And and that, friends, is exactly why He died on the cross for you so that you can have union with Him, so that He can pour His Spirit into your heart, so that He can make His home in us, so that we can commune with Him at all times, praying at all times in the Spirit. He he didn't die just to, to, to save you and just to say, hey, this one, sins are taken care of, they can get into heaven, no problem. He He died so that He can have a relationship with you. He he, he saved you so that you can have His Spirit and so that you can have never-ending access to His resurrection power, His strength, and His might. You see, we fight and we build in prayer. That's how Nehemiah lived his life, and it's the exact same for us Christians today. Christian, are you awake? Are you alert with that perseverance? Do you wake up every morning knowing that you've been saved by Jesus, 
so that you can be part of the renewal of this world, the, the building of his kingdom. And are you aware that it's a battle? It's a battle, there's opposition, and the only way forward is to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. So to remember the Lord, how great and awesome he is, to remember that he fights for us, and that he gives us everything that we need to, to fight and to build everything we need to to stand firm against our enemy, and the only way forward is by depending on him in prayer every step of the way. This is what we're wanting to learn again as a church family. We build and we fight in prayer. Um, I'll go as far as to say this. Our, Our Sunday gathering right now is incredibly important, right? Like, the assembly of God's people, that's what the church means. It means assembly. Coming together regularly around this table, remembering Jesus, worshiping Jesus, pointing each other to Jesus again. That's, that's the church, right? And, but I'm more and more convinced that the most important gathering of the week is the prayer, prayer meeting. It's the times when we are praying. Because everything else we do is powerless without prayer. Prayer is what fuels all that we do, praying at all times in the Spirit, making supplication for the saints, praying for your brothers and sisters. Like, why did Jesus give that parable of the persistent widow in Luke 18? That we ought always to pray and not lose heart. It's easy easy to lose heart. It's a battle. There's opposition. There's mocking. There's jeering. And so this is what it looks like to persevere and to build in the face of opposition. Um, Do you stand with me? We'll pray. And thank you, Lord, that you um, you are in control. And Jesus, you uphold the universe with the word of your power. And Jesus, you have defeated our enemy. You've defeated sin and death. And you've saved us for a purpose, Lord. (laughs) You've saved us not so that we can never worry again in this lifetime, but so that we can be part of what you're doing. And we can be part of the building of your kingdom, going and making disciples and, and baptizing and, and teaching and, and building each other up in love and service and edifying one another. Lord, thank you for that privilege of being called yours, of being given a purpose in this life. And thank you, Jesus, that you've given us everything that we need to build and to fight everything we need to persevere. And that that doesn't mean it's easy from here on out. Jesus, you said the opposite. It's going to be really hard. It's going to be really hard. And so that's why you've given us your spirit to help us, to guide us. You've given us one another to fight alongside so that we can remember you, to remember that you're the one that fights for us. And would you do that in us again, Lord? Would you make us to be a people 
who knows our purpose in this world and depends on you every step of the way. We thank you for your promises, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.